Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. Today's episode is presented by Equinor. Should offshore wind be measured in knots or watts? At Equinor, we measure it in gigawatts. When complete, Dogger Bank Wind Farm could produce 3.6 gigawatts of electricity. Visit equinor.co.uk. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. PMQ's Prime Minister's Questions was the most nerve-wracking, discombobulating, nail-biting, bile-moving terror-inspiring, courage-draining experience in my prime ministerial life without question, Tony Blair writes in his memoir. Now, that's maybe a little too much information, but his words might offer some consolation to poor old Boris Johnson, who, after next week, at least won't have to face the ordeal of prime minister's questions ever again. This week, he laid the groundwork for that historic final appearance, apparently clinging to the hope that he might not even be required to turn up for one last outing next Wednesday. I I feel a real twinge, Mr Speaker, that this is uh, probably virtually the last time I'll have the opportunity to, uh, to answer a question. And who can blame him? Prime Minister's Questions has, after all, been a punishing weekly punctuation point throughout Boris Johnson's premiership as it has for every Prime Minister of recent times. Whatever the political backdrop, be it sex scandals or police investigations, foreign wars or backbench rebellions, the Prime Minister is dragged to the chamber every Wednesday at 12 o'clock to face the music. Mr Speaker. It's here that we see the high drama of British politics. Terrible jokes are told. Any one of them would wipe the floor with Captain Crasheroonie's snooze fest. Political arguments are tested. To level up in a way that will benefit the constituents. The big ideas of the time debated. They're doing nothing on the cost of living crisis. Leaders rise and leaders fall. So I want to thank him. I think it'd be fair to say he's been considerably less lethal uh, than many other members of this House. What's it like to stand at the dispatch box for that weekly grilling? Your adrenaline was flowing and it it felt okay, but you were always pleased when it was over. How do different leaders prepare? Gordon really wanted to be in the detail of everything. What are the great moments? When Blair said to Major, week, 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 you could sense perceptions changing. And how does it feel when it all goes horribly wrong? You feel the shame burning your skin. From Politico, I'm Alva Ray, and this week on Westminster Insider, we're going inside the high point of the political week, Prime Minister's Questions. 
and we're asking, what on earth is the point of it all? It's 6am on Wednesday morning and there's a knot in the pit of your stomach. You've woken up in the pokey little flat above number 10 Downing Street, you know, the one with the lovely gold wallpaper. And yes, you're the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Not only do you run the country, but in a few hours you will face a televised grilling on how you're doing the job. Hundreds of your opponents will be sitting right in front of you, shouting and baying and screaming blue murder as you try to answer questions on literally any possible subject from buses to foreign wars, from hospital waiting times to scandals in your own party. You check your watch. The clock is slowly ticking down towards midday. There was always that feeling about 10 to quarter to of sort of utter dread of thinking, oh, I, you know, I'd rather be doing anything anywhere else in the world than what I'm about to have to go through. This is David Cameron, the former prime minister. Even if you're totally on top of the facts and even if things are going well, you're just you're nervous because, you know, so many things can go wrong. We used to call it walking the green mile. I mean, it's much less than a mile, but there was slightly the sense of the condemned man walking along those green corridors <laughs> towards the chamber. And then you're up. Questions to the Prime Minister. 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 George Osborne always used to say, it's the one time of the week that people sitting behind you don't want your job. The thing people can always find surprising is that, you know, you really don't know what's going to be asked. I mean, if there are friendly people on your own side, they will say, well, I'm going to ask about my local hospital. The great British jobs boom has earned the Prime Minister and the Chancellor the aberration of leaders the world over. But the rest of them, you might know who the questioner is because they're on the order paper. You certainly don't know what they're going to ask. You don't know what the leader of the opposition is going to ask and you don't know who else is going to get called. Jacob Rees-Mogg. Thank you, um, Mr Speaker. There is one question from a backbencher, and then it's over to the main event, the showdown with the leader of the opposition. You think through, if I say X and, you know, the Labour leader says Y, I then say Z, what does he say back to that? So you try and think through the stages so you're ready. You know, because I mean, Ed Miliband is a very bright guy and was a good performer and uh, had some great lines. So you had to think it through very carefully so you're not suddenly absolutely skewered and left sort of flapping like a dead fish on the beach. The strategising for PMQs begins days beforehand. Someone from the PMQs team would, would sort of pop their head round the door and on a sort of Monday evening and just say, look, here, here's what we think are the subjects that might be coming up this week. And that would be a sort of 10-minute chat. And then Tuesday evening, I'd be sent off up to the flat with a massive folder of, of stuff to read. And then Wednesday morning itself, that was when the real preparation took place. And, you know, I'd have my morning meeting in the normal way and dispatch the business of government between um, sort of 8.30 and 9.30. And then 9.30 to 12 o'clock was absolutely solid going through all the potential questions. Then an amazing cast of the most senior figures from the Conservative Party, from George Osborne to Michael Gove, would pile into number 10 for an hour of briefing, banter and role-play as Ed Miliband or Jeremy Corbyn. 
even when things weren't going well, they were always very entertaining meetings because, you know, people would be coming up with the most brilliant questions that, that Ed Miliband or, or um, Jeremy Corbyn, whoever it was, could, could ask. And so th there was always a lot of laughter and jokes and fun as you were trying to think of what's the very worst question you could be asked. Cameron writes in his memoir that Michael Gove would write poems for these meetings and jokes that were too rude for Cameron to use. He even, if you can imagine it, used to rap. Michael was particularly funny. He was very good at mixing references from popular culture with references from the world of politics and mixing them together and, and uh, was always much better than the Labour opponent you actually had to face at the end of the day. Meanwhile, on the other side of the political divide, Ed Miliband would be preparing devastating attack lines. Oh, God, honestly, but, but what is the argument? What is the big argument here? What is the... That's not actually Ed Miliband, of course, but his former advisor and joke writer extraordinaire, Aisha Hazarika. When I asked Ed Miliband if he would like to appear on this episode, he told me, Aisha does a better impression of me panicking before PMQs than I could do myself. And he wasn't wrong. God, we've got to do something about inequality. Oh, God, honestly. Aisha prepared Miliband for PMQs throughout his Labour leadership, as well as advising Harriet Harman both in government, when she stood in for Gordon Brown, and during her two stints as acting Labour leader. She's also the co-author of Punch and Judy Politics, an insider's guide to Prime Minister's questions. Come sort of Friday, Saturday, definitely Sunday, that creeping sense of dread begins again. You know, the new news cycle for the week really starts, you know, with the, with the Sunday paper. So from kind of midnight Saturday night when the first editions come out, you know, anyone who's involved in PMQ starts thinking, God, you know, what, what's coming up and, you know, what should be thinking of? And then it's like this growing pressure that just builds and builds. He had an amazing team of people. I mean, not me, like the biggest brains in the Labour Party. I know that might not sound much, but trust me, these were clever people. They'd come in with like a doorstop of a folder with facts and figures. And Ed would still sit there and just be like, oh, I just don't think I've got enough. I just need more stats. I just need more. And then he'd go home and he'd turn up the next day with his own file and we used to joke that he'd go home and you remember how Batman had like the bat cave. Ed would have like the stat cave in his house where he'd go in, put on his like stat man costume, which would probably be like a, an old Fabian's T-shirt from like the early 90s. And he'd just spend the whole night researching and we'd come in the next morning at like seven in the morning or some ungodly hour. And all the like researchers would look really weary and he'd be like, aha, I have found these stats. <laughs> it was just like, oh God. <laughs> He'd like outstat the stat boys. Some leaders cope better with the preparation than others. Theo Bertram was an advisor to Tony Blair and Gordon Brown in Number 10, and he diplomatically describes the difference in approach between the two new Labour prime ministers. Gordon was different. Gordon, first of all, really wanted to be in the detail of everything, and in some ways... PMQs was a sort of massive PhD for him in learning everything about government and using the PMQs process to interrogate every uh, piece of information from government. With with Tony, sort of, you know, a brief would come through from a department saying, you know, this happened, this is how we're fixing it, these are the questions you might get, these are the lines to take. 
he'd absorb that quickly. Gordon would scribble through them with his huge marker pen and then be full of questions and sending them back. We wanted more and more information and would interrogate the, the data. David Cameron would spend the last crucial hour before PMQs all alone with only his folder of notes for company. I'd sit on my own for quite a long time in the room behind the speaker's chair. And I, I was sort of, it sounds a bit blue Peter, but I'd literally make up the file myself. I'd cut out things and stick them down and put the dividers in myself in the file and write out things I wanted to say or questions I might get. So I knew, you know, so in, by the time I was finished, it was absolutely, you know, my own messy piece of, of, of work because I knew where everything was. And then, then the sort of mounting sense of dread as the clock ticked towards 12 o'clock. The leader of the opposition can ask six questions of the Prime Minister at PMQs. Ed Miliband. Mr Speaker. The six questions don't have to be on the same subject or used up all in one go. And in fact, you don't even have to use all of them if you don't want to. But the classic approach, as I'm sure you've noticed, is to prosecute an argument over six questions on the one subject, beginning with short, sharp questions, building a case and ending on a grand conclusion that you'll probably see used as a clip on social media. By the time you've got to your sixth question, it's less of asking a specific question. It's more sort of peroration of what your big argument is. Maybe that is the, the question which has got the big soundbite in it, attacking the prime minister. That might be the thing that gets on the, the television. The defining characteristic of this government is it stands aside and does nothing as thousands of people find themselves unemployed. And after that crucial final question, the Prime Minister too launches into the big, pre-prepared closing remarks of his own. Except, that is, when the leader of the opposition stops after question five, as William Hague used to sometimes do, leaving Tony Blair clueless as to when he should wheel out his best attack lines. With him at this dispatch box has been exciting and fascinating and fun and an enormous challenge and, from my point of view, wholly unproductive. <laughs> <laughs> Leaders of the opposition have lots of scope for experimentation at PMQs, but it doesn't always work. I want to ask the Prime Minister a question about tax credits. Jeremy had this habit of asking questions on behalf of, you know, Bob from Nuneaton or, or what have you. Kelly writes, I'm a single mum to a disabled child. Which I think he thought was going to be real people's stories and, and therefore was going to be awkward for me. I love that because it finally became an opportunity where you could really explain what you were trying to do to help Bob in Nuneaton. Kelly will benefit as that, as that national living wage rises to £9. Whether it was a question about buses or benefits or jobs or the health service, I liked that because it gave you an opportunity, which you're always longing for in politics, to actually explain your policies. And also, Kelly, if she has children, will be benefiting from the 30 hours of childcare that we're bringing in. That didn't work for him, and I thought it worked quite well for me, so that was always a joy, actually. So you plan the questions on the one side, you anticipate your replies on the other, you imagine the attacks and gameplay it in your head, you think about the big political message you want to shoehorn in for the news. But there's a limit to how much any leader can control events. No matter how much you prepare, in the end, it's still just you, alone at the dispatch box, at the mercy of events, with your advisers anxiously looking on. 
The most tricky moment in PMQs that I had was when Jeff Hoon and Patricia Hewitt started a coup. They sent a letter calling on the Prime Minister to, to resign in the middle of PMQs. And I was sitting in the box where the advisors sit, which is at the very end of the room. And it was clear to me that something was happening. All of these Tory MPs were talking to each other. And so one of my colleagues ducked out of the box, looked at Sky News and came back into the room and uh, whispered to me that you know this coup was unfolding. And so I was in this position then about, do I warn Gordon while he's on his feet that there is a coup taking place? And there was only a few minutes left to go. So I thought, you know, Cameron had finished all his questions, so he wasn't going to ask. There's only a few minutes left to go. And I thought, I think we can get away with it. So I didn't send the note down the line. And it looked like we were going to get away with it. And then Anne Winterton stood up. Anne Winterton. And I could see all around her were these uh, Tory MPs encouraging her to ask Gordon about the coup. And I could see people handing her uh, pieces of paper. And I thought, oh, no, this is it. Here it comes. He's going to be asked about this. And instead, she battered them all away and insisted on asking her own question. Will the Prime Minister reconsider the proposed wasteful expenditure of £100 billion on offshore wind farms? Wonderful. So determined was she to ask about this that she wouldn't take this moment to skewer Gordon. And so we got away with it. And then Gordon came out uh, and all all the media assumed that Gordon had known about the coup from the beginning and had handled PMQs impassively without blinking an eye, whereas, in fact, we kind of went out blind without knowing and we got through it by the skin of our teeth. It's those moments of being caught off guard, stumped for a reply, stunned by an embarrassing revelation that advisers and leaders really fear. And, to David Cameron's frustration... Even if he acted cool as a cucumber, there was often a telltale sign that he had been rattled. I blush very easily, so if I'm embarrassed, I can feel my face turning even redder than it normally is. And so I could never hide. If someone got me at Prime Minister's Questions, there was, you know, it was very obvious I'd been got because I I blush very easily. I remember Mm -hmm. a, a, a medic friend of mine said, you know, Maybe you should take a beta blocker before Prime Minister's questions. And I thought this was a terrible idea. I thought you could turn up on a Wednesday and sort of suddenly sort of slump on the dispatch box. (laughs) Some sort of medication to calm you down. Because the truth is you do get, you know, the adrenaline flows and and that makes your brain work faster and you're you're quick-witted and hopefully have great recall. But sometimes you're almost a bit too full of testosterone and you're too hyped up and and uh, but anyway i never tried the uh, I, there was no no medication was taken before premises questions but there's another big part to all of this that we haven't mentioned yet that's right the jokes the terrible terrible jokes love them or hate them and i confess i have some fondness for them they have become fundamental to how most politicians approach PMQs. The ones you're really pleased with is when you actually, when spontaneously you come up with something in the heat of the moment. One I remember, I mean, it's not a very edifying spectacle, this one, was you'll remember that at some stage it was revealed that Ed Miliband had a second kitchen 
nothing wrong with having a second kitchen, but but he was he did a photo call in the smaller of his two kitchens. It came out. So the real kitchen sink drama came with the revelation the Labour leader has two kitchens. There is a serious point, isn't there? Because you've accused David Cameron of being posh and out of touch. And yet here's Ed Miliband with his £2 million London townhouses, two kitchens. Can you tell me what is a second kitchen for? Well, apparently it's for tea and snacks. Because yeah. you wouldn't really? want to mess up your big kitchen with that. <laughs> and this is sort of perfect for Bryce's questions because anything that goes to hypocrisy or pretending to be something you're not always sort of works very well. And so I have to admit, I did prepare a series of really lame jokes about Ed Miliband's two kitchens. And I remember my daughter was going to be watching Primus' Questions that day. And I said to her at breakfast, Nancy, you know, what you're about to watch, please do not take this as an example of how to behave in class or or what, what Primus' Questions really about. But they were terrible. I feel sorry for the leader of the opposition. He literally doesn't know where his next meal's coming from. Somehow, Mr Speaker, I thought he might mention kitchens. Oh, don't worry, there's plenty more. Frankly, if he can't stand the heat, he better get out of his second kitchen. I mean, they were terrible jokes, but they were in the sort of theatricality of Prime's questions. You could hear the roar of enforced laughter from behind you, and uh, you knew it was going to be a bit of a romp because you had some 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 all bit corny but quite funny lines. I can see the shadow chancellor chuckling. We we know the shadow chancellor wants to be in the kitchen cabinet. He just doesn't know which kitchen to turn up to. Both sides put a, frankly, surprising amount of work into the dad jokes that pepper PMQs and make the audience groan. If politics is about persuasion, then emotion, laughter, humour, with a grain of political truth tucked inside, can often be a deeper way of connecting with voters than any devastating statistic. Some of David Cameron's jokes were really, really, really good. I remember there was one against... (laughs) Ed Balls, where he had forgotten the name of a donor. He was asked on Newsnight, look, you've got no businesses supporting the Labour Party. And he said, yes, there is. I've been at a dinner tonight with a number um, of business-supporting Labour figures. Who, there, who, there'll who? be some... Well, um, uh, the um, uh, Bill, um, the former chief executive of, of EDS. What was his and, name? But, well, uh, to be honest, it's just gone from my head, which is a bit annoying at this time of night. And he couldn't remember... Bill's second name, so I said that wasn't a name, it was a policy. His shadow chancellor was asked on the television, could he think of one single business leader? And do you know what he said? Do you know what he said, Mr Speaker? He said, he said, Bill somebody. (laughs) Mr Speaker, Bill somebody's not a person, Bill somebody's Labour's policy. Puns, double entendres, things that show up, lack of authenticity... These are absolute meat and drink for Primus' questions. That's actually a really good joke. Like it's it's funny, it's kind of witty, but also it, it, it spoke to a perception about the Labour Party. Some of his other jokes were kind of ridiculous. I remember one time he just he just had like a real cool Ed Miliband. Ed Miliband had had quite an unfortunate haircut, to be absolutely fair. He just like, I think he just sort of like called Ed Ed Miliband like Basil Brush or something. There are moments I think I'm up against Basil Brush. Um, <laughs> It was just like so junior. Like it was a kind of like if you said you were like three-year-old had, had come up with that as a joke, you'd be like, yeah, mate, I think that's a bit, I think you can do better. Even at the age of three, you can do better. We're all disappointed. The best jokes in the chamber at PMQs are when both sides are laughing. And that is the sign of a good joke. When there is such a political truth to it, 
even the person who's having the sort of piss ripped out of them goes, okay, fair play, fair play. That was a really, really good crack. If a PMQs has gone well, the leader leaves elated, with MPs coming up to him or her on the walk back, replaying the jokes that landed well. People would come rushing up to him as we were walking through the Palace of Westminster back to his offices. People would be leaping out of the place to shake his hand and go, oh, that was brilliant. Or he would go to the tea room and he'd get mobbed by people. Whereas if you'd had a really bad PMQs, or this was the worst, like if you'd had a bad PMQs, or let's say you just completely got mullered or you, your lines didn't land, that walk home to your office was so lonely. It was so lonely. It was so long. And it was so cold. The worst thing is, is when you've absolutely fluffed it and you're walking back and no one will make eye contact with you. <laughs> you feel the shame burning your skin. We've made it through a session of Prime Minister's questions. The preparation, the jokes, the fear. And I think we just got the scoops that David Cameron considered taking medication to control his blushing. But what's the point in it all? What exactly is a Prime Minister trying to achieve at PMQs? And how on earth did we get to the point where our leaders even agreed to subject themselves to it? Stay with us. A message from Equinor. Back to that question. Should offshore wind be measured in knots or watts? At Equinor, we measure it in gigawatts. When complete, Dogger Bank will be the world's largest offshore wind farm. It could provide the UK with 3.6 gigawatts of electricity, enough to power 5 million homes. See how we're accelerating the UK energy transition at equinor.co.uk. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. Although it's now seen as the showpiece occasion in the mother of all parliaments, PMQs is not actually some grand British tradition dating back hundreds of years. The PMQs we know today has evolved slowly into existence. Until the 1960s, a question for the Prime Minister would be timetabled last on the day's list, a convention that began in the 1880s so that the ageing William Gladstone could arrive late in the day. 
Then it was agreed that the Prime Minister would only answer questions on Tuesdays and Thursdays to accommodate another ageing and infirm Prime Minister, this time Winston Churchill. In all this time, there was a feeling that tabling a question for the PM was never particularly helpful or interesting anyway. In fact, it was quite common for the House of Commons to run out of time before they ever reached questions for the Prime Minister. Eventually, in July 1961, the House of Commons decided to experiment with a fixed 15-minute slot on Tuesdays and Thursdays. If you had to pick a date of birth for PMQs, that would be it. But it took a while for it to get interesting. And for that, we can thank the cunning of a little-known Labour MP. In 1975, the Newcastle under Lyme MP, John Golding, asked the Prime Minister a question. If he would state his engagements for April the 29th. But it wasn't the boring question it seemed to be. He had found a way to dodge the vetting system on questions to the Prime Minister. By asking the broadest possible opening question, he created a mechanism by which he could then use his follow-up to ask about literally anything, without forewarning the Prime Minister or the party whips. At a stroke, the unpredictability of Prime Minister's questions was born, and it's still that mechanism that MPs are using, even if they don't know it. Mr Speaker, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others. In addition to my duties in this house... I shall have further such meetings later today. But it was when Tony Blair took office in 1997 that the weekly punch-up we know today was born. He adapted PMQs from two 15-minute sessions on a Tuesday and Thursday to the barnstorming 30 minutes on a Wednesday that we know today. This caused quite a stir at the time, but Blair writes in his memoir that future prime ministers would thank him for it. And they do. You know, I'm very glad it went down to once a week. I, I remember working for John Major when it was twice a week, and it did seem to just take out a huge chunk of two days. I mean, the accountability part of being prime minister is terribly important, but you've got to leave the person with enough time to get on and do the job. So I wouldn't blame you if you thought the PMQs was a bit of a waste of time. It's partisan, it's petty. It all seems quite shallow when you're at home watching it on TV. I also wouldn't blame you if you find the sight of our elected representatives behaving like toddlers for half an hour, screaming insults at each other and laughing delightedly rude, silly, painfully unfunny jokes, a little bit unedifying. But there is more to the strange spectacle of PMQs than you might think. Underneath the flippant, the superficial, the theatrical, real hard politics is going on. Order! Order! So here's what you need to know. Essentially, there are three big purposes to PMQs, and they all matter hugely to any serving Prime Minister. The first is short-term, party management. This is the time of the week where both leaders, but especially the Prime Minister, are forced to reconnect with their MPs, to impress them, face their questions, and remind them why they are their leader. You've got to show your own side um, that you are leading the government, that you've got the right ideas, you can take on the opposition, you can deliver the arguments that they can use in, in speeches and articles and when they go back to their constituency. So there is a sort of rallying cry that you've got to try and get right. 
the fragile fortunes of our political leaders ride, at least in part, on those performances in the chamber. But there's a second purpose to it all, one that happens entirely behind the scenes. It was never intended to work like this, but PMQs is actually one of the most important mechanisms at a Prime Minister's disposal for keeping the work of government ticking over, catching problems and fixing policy issues as they arise. Theo Bertram again. The 30 minutes that happens on Wednesday is just the tip of the iceberg. And what goes on beneath that is every government department has to be ready for uh, 12 o'clock at Wednesday. And every government department has gone through looking where they have the sort of skeletons in the closet. There is this huge inflow of information into number 10 of departments saying, this is going wrong. We're getting questions about this thing. This policy is failing. And 90% of that stuff is never asked about at PMQs. But it means that number 10 has seen all of that. It means that number 10 has gone through and assessed how harmful it is, has pressed the departments on what they can do. And in that way, it does keep uh, government accountable. As Prime Minister, at 12 o'clock on a Wednesday, you've got to know absolutely everything that's going on in the government. Your tentacles, like an octopus, reach out across Whitehall and you, you make sure you're happy with the answer to every question. It, it's a moment where you as Prime Minister make the whole system accountable to you. And as a result, sometimes policies and approaches and lines are changed because you think, hold on a second, why are we saying that about Western Sahara? Or why is that our approach to um, you know, education reform in, in Cornwall? Um, and so uh, you know, things change because you're fully aware of everything that's going on in your government. So it does have a good purpose in terms of the accountability of the system to the Prime Minister and the Prime Minister to the House of Commons. So leaders need PMQs for party management, And we all need PMQs for the mechanism of accountability that it represents. And then there's the third purpose. Something maybe less obvious on the day, but equally important as it plays out over time. PMQs is where both sides' longer-term political arguments are crafted, tested and honed. It's the arena where Westminster's political narrative is thrashed out over weeks and months. And so, if you care about Westminster politics you'd better be paying close attention. There's a set of arguments you're trying to make from opposition, what you would do if you were running the country, and in as Prime Minister, what you are doing running the country. You often see those attacks lines tested at PMQs. So when I was working for Ed Miliband, one of the things we heard very, very early on from David Cameron and George Osborne was key lines which we saw you know four and a half five years later really amped up we took difficult decisions to get our deficit down having a long-term economic plan you can't have infrastructure investment without a secure and strong economy it's about a strong and secure economy would you trust giving back the keys to ed miliband and ed balls who had had crashed the car we have a long-term plan all those lines were tested they were sort of trialed um, and then they were sort of embedded. So it became like a refrain for the backbenchers as well. So the backbenchers, just by sitting at PMQs week in, week out, they would kind of have the script in their head. They just knew what the attack lines were. Leaders have to be good teachers. So you have to keep explaining and explaining. Um, and Prime Minister's questions, I mean, it's not the best place to do it, but it's one place where at least you're 
your supporters are, are listening to. It doesn't matter whether you sort of win or lose one PMQs, but are you able over the course of that term to explain where you stand, to explain why you're prime minister and what you're in government for, what is your government trying to achieve? I think if you can do that over the course of three months, it doesn't matter whether you win or lose a particular day or whether you can or can't answer a particular question. If you can get that across, then that's the key thing. I think if you've got that sense of a North Star, then it's a lot easier to handle. And if you don't, then I think you're always at sea. Politics is about far more than human drama. It's the serious business of making decisions that affect ordinary people's lives, and it's often bland, unsexy stuff. But it's also about power and plotting and personalities, and Prime Minister's questions, more than anything else, is where the human drama of politics is explored and revealed. Parliament is theatre. This is the Times newspaper's legendary sketch writer and theatre critic, Quentin Letts, who has written about and mocked literally hundreds of these encounters over the years. Sometimes the cameos will give us a sketch, so some uh, backbencher uh, making a fool of him or herself, or else someone doing well, um, uh, you know, a tremendous heckle. There was a time when John Burko stood up and tried to be clever against Tony Blair, and Tony Blair squashed him fantastically. Burko was a very bumptious little uh, backbencher. Actually, he stayed bumptious all his life, didn't he? But um, that was, again, a moment that you could seize on, told you something about Blair's preparation and command and also about the squirtiness of the young John Burko. So it's no surprise that the great British tradition of sketch writing, as old as political journalism itself, this tradition of painting a picture in words that captures and illuminates the events of the chamber, is so closely associated with PMQs. You look for character, you look for um, pride being undone, uh, and you look for uh, witticisms, I suppose. There was a time when John Prescott had just had that terrible sex scandal. He'd been having it off with his secretary, and he came in to do PMQs. Blair was away, and um, he was having a rough time from the house. And a Labour backbencher called Anne Snellgrove from some, somewhere in Swindon stood up, and she said, we're proud of him, she said about John Prescott, and whereupon Michael Fabricant said, she'll be next. And that just sort of somehow, it was a very coarse thing to say, but uh, it, 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 it wounded Prescott because Prescott had been trying to be in control and was trying to ignore the sex scandal. Uh, that never worked. Uh, the similar thing happened, Nick Clegg, after he'd announced that he'd been to bed with 30 women in his life, uh, he talked about a, uh, a constituent, a young um, a single mum had been to see him in his surgery and someone shouted up, 31! Uh, so uh, you, there are times when uh, a slightly sort of tight-lipped and pompous uh, front venture can be undone by a heckle. The point, of course, is that in PMQs, as in politics in general, personality really does matter. Sketch writing is not about policy. Um, uh, it is about the characters. It's You try to uh, capture something about the attitude of the people, uh, that the way that they walk and talk is quite interesting because those things do help craft our perceptions of politicians. And politicians spend a lot of time on image as well, so you're analysing some of that. But really it's to do with the inner politician and what's happening with the person. 
My feeling about PMQs is it's quite often evaporates as fast as summer rain. Um, and the, there are very few sessions of Prime Minister's Questions which have been significant, uh, I think. At the time when Cameron said to Blair, he was the future once, that, that again felt a fairly significant moment, but those are few and far between. I want to talk about the future. Yeah. He was the future once. <laughs> These are the moments when politics attains the level of Shakespearean drama. Every once in a while, characters are undone and history is made before our eyes. When uh, Vince Cable said to Gordon Brown, he's gone from Stalin to Mr Bean, and that, um, that wounded poor old Gordon. And there's also the time when Blair said to Major, weak, weak, weak. And that, was a, that, that felt like a big moment. You could sense perceptions changing. Uh, not about Major, because they were always fairly low, and Major, but of Blair, that here was somebody who really could be Prime Minister. And I remember Mrs Thatcher's last, one of her, must have been her last PMQs, I think, where she'd just been effectively toppled, but she was still there as Prime Minister for the last few days, and she had a rallying time. I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying this. You could get something of Mrs T's uh, inner resilience, um, perhaps a slight touch of, of, of the madness as well about her. Above all, PMQs is there for those moments when power ebbs away, when everyone knows the jig is up. It's where politicians rise and where they fall. And we all saw it happen only last week. I sat in the press gallery for Prime Minister's questions and you could feel, you could hear the authority and power of Boris Johnson draining away moment by moment. Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister who is writing a biography of Shakespeare, stood in the House of Commons for the final act of his own Shakespearean drama, the fall of his premiership. Like King Lear, losing his grip on power but too proud to see it, the fallen Johnson carried on at PMQs while the room felt his authority ebb away. The charge of the lightweight brigade. (laughs) Doesn't the country deserve better? than a Z-list cast of nodding dogs. Does the Prime Minister think there are any circumstances in which he should resign? (laughs) Today I ask him to do the honourable thing, to put the interests of the nation before his own interests. Prime Minister. I I thank him very much for the the point that he's, uh, he's he's made again. Within 24 hours, Johnson had resigned. It is clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new Prime Minister. Parliament is a stage and all its politicians merely players. They have their exits and their entrances and a leader in his or her time plays several parts. Sometimes the hero, sometimes the villain, sometimes the court jester. Parliament is theatre and no more so than at 12 o'clock on a Wednesday at Prime Minister's Questions. And that is that, the end. (laughs) That duty to serve my constituents will remain my greatest motivation. After all, as I once said, I was the future once. These sessions leave a mark on those who are brave enough to participate in them long after they have exited stage left. I'd sort of sit bolt upright on a Wednesday morning 
and and think of the terrace to come and then sort of slump back into bed as I realized I, I didn't have to do it anymore. But it's a bit like um, uh, I, I occasionally still have a dream that I'm standing at the dispatch box and answering questions and and uh, and then you wake up. Sometimes these things, they loom so large in your life that um, that you go on thinking about them afterwards. But no, my Wednesdays now are, are, um, are free of those thoughts. It's an extraordinary feat. A bizarre, demanding, important spectacle at the heart of our politics. I would say one of the reasons why PMQs is as important is just how stressful it is for the prime ministers. It's the most stressful time of the week for them. Even Tony Blair at the end, when he was a complete master at it, he would still be petrified before PMQs. Everybody can be a critic. Everybody can be this amazing armchair critic, which, oh, I wouldn't have done it that way. I would have done it this way. No, 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 you should have done it this way. But actually, you get up there with the noise and the aggression and the noise. It's so noisy in there. You can practically feel it in your sternum. It's a noise which sort of reverberates through your, your body. And it's like a sort of sensory assault. Your heart rate is going, you're sweating, your hands are shaking. It's a very, very physically intense, as well as mentally and intellectually intense experience. So I always think that as much as everybody gives it the big one about how they would have done it, actually doing it is so, so difficult. Very, very, very few people can do it well. Order, order. I will not tolerate such behaviour. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, Alva Ray. If you've enjoyed it, please shout it from the rooftops on social media, subscribe and maybe leave us a nice review. Thank you very much to my guests, David Cameron, Aisha Hazarika, Theo Bertram and Quentin Letts. My producer this week was James Tyndale of Whistledown Productions. And here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez and my editor is Jack Blanchard. And that's it for this season of Westminster Insider. We'll be back soon, probably with a new Prime Minister. But these episodes are meant to be timeless, so do go back and explore past episodes on everything from how to topple a Prime Minister, timely, to how Westminster's political journalists really operate. See you soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.